Good morning. This is Mary Virginia Curry at the Virginia Historical Society. I'm very pleased to have as my guest once again Jerry McCarthy, the Executive Director of the Virginia Environmental Endowment. This is our second interview and we're going to begin today around the year 1970. You actually became head of the Council, um, the Virginia Council on the Environment about that time and you were the chairman and the administrator, and well, were there any other staff? Well, the, it evolved. The, the, the Governor's Council on the Environment, as it was first called, was established by Governor Linwood Houghton in the uh, first few months of his term because of the great interest in the environment in Virginia and around the country. Um, President Nixon had just signed the National Environmental Policy Act that created the Environmental Protection Agency. And Governor Houghton, in his inaugural address, had made the environment one of his top priorities. So in order to bring some coordination and cohesiveness to the state's environmental efforts, he uh, created the Governor's Council on the Environment. I, I always like to say out of his hip pocket because there wasn't any legislation authorizing it. He uh, issued an executive order creating it and put the uh, three citizen appointees of his uh, to form an executive committee of it. And then um, the chairs uh, or top leaders of all the environmental agencies, such as the State Water Control Board, the State Air Pollution Control Board, the Division of Water Resources, the State Health Commissioner, and uh, the head of the Game and Fish Department. And he also added the chairman of the State Corporation Commission and the Attorney General and the State Highway Commissioner. So it was a very comprehensive group of people whose job it was to coordinate their activities with respect to improving Virginia's environment. And I was hired as the first executive director of the Governor's Council. After a couple of years, the legislature then passed a law creating officially the Virginia Council on the Environment changed the structure slightly so that I became uh, the chairman as well as the administrator, chief executive of the council. And so that's where that came from. Overall, in the years that you were on this council, um, what was sort of your, your greatest uh, accomplish, accomplishment at that time? Did you feel satisfied in what you were you able to meet the goal? Oh yeah, it was a really important time uh, for the environment because while Virginia had a very good water control law and had the beginnings of an air pollution effort, uh, the water law had been in effect since 1946, the air law since 1966, and here we were in 1970, attempting to do everything from land conservation, which also existed in a way through the Outdoors Foundation, um, created by Senator Bemis when he was in the legislature in 1966, um, but bringing big projects together like energy siting, power plants, things of that sort, um, regional developments, how do you get a grip on those, how about where air, water, and waste intersect in a given project, um, all of that was handled separately and we were trying to bring it more in line uh, to work more efficiently from the point of view of the user but also more effectively from the point of view of protecting the state's environment. We also had a flurry of legislation um, improving, for example, the er getting an erosion and sediment control law uh, set up in 1973 
having an environmental impact statement law approved in 1973, and several other pieces of legislation that occurred during that period, so that um, we made really very, very good progress. Plus, we did something that the state no longer does and hasn't done for a long time, and that is we started an annual report on the condition of Virginia's environment. So that we told the public every year exactly what was what, what was working, what still needed improvement, what recommendations we had for going forward. And uh, it's something that I think every government agency probably ought to do to let the people who pay for it know how their money is being spent and whether it's accomplishing anything of value. And we were the first, I think, in Virginia, we were certainly the first, this is a little footnote to Virginia history, um, we were the first state agency, the Governor's Council on the Environment, ever to hold public hearings in Virginia, as far as I know. And that was in the late part of 1970. We decided that um, we really wanted to know what the public thought our agenda ought to be, both for the Governor's sake, for the legislature's sake, and frankly as a way of building public support for our agenda of improving the environment in Virginia. So we scheduled a series of five public hearings around the state. We had to spend two nights in Northern Virginia because over 1,500 people turned out, almost every one of them wanted to speak to us. Um, Roanoke, uh, Richmond, Norfolk, and I forget where the fifth one was, but everywhere we went, the next morning, whether it was the Washington Post or the Roanoke Times or the Richmond paper or the Norfolk paper, we were front page news. Citizens speak out on the environment, tell the government what they want. It was really a wonderful idea and it built such great support for trying to get some of these laws passed. Now, the legislature wasn't as excited as the governor was about passing this legislation, so that's part of why we had to build some public support. And we published a report summarizing the recommendations from those public hearings called Our Commonwealth, Virginians Speak Out on the Condition of the Environment. The State Library probably has that in its archives somewhere. And then a year later, we published the first ever report on Virginia's environment called The State of Virginia's Environment, which was a bit of a play on words, as you can imagine. You know, what was its condition, its state, of the state, as it were, of the Commonwealth. And we did that for several years thereafter, every year, pointing out the issues under consideration, what we thought ought to be done about them. That no longer happens, unfortunately, and I think it's something that the state ought to look at and so we get to the time period when um, we can start the story about Kiko <laughs> and its impact on the state of Virginia. It's involved Allied Chemical Company. Mm -hmm. Well, it was an unknown substance. Nobody had ever heard of it. Nobody monitored it. Uh, nobody knew it existed except the people who made it. And um, while they had been discharging it, to the James River for many years, nobody knew that. Because at that time, the level of technology employed to detect toxic substances in the water was such that you only could identify what you knew you should be looking for. And if you didn't know what you were looking for, you couldn't find it. And so Kipone was one of 20 or 30,000 chemicals being discharged into Virginia's environment at the time that the state had no idea uh, about. They had no idea that it was happening. And the only reason the state 
pollution agencies learned about it was through a health emergency when the workers who manufactured Kipo, which was a, an insecticide, got so sick from working in it every day that they'd literally come home coated with this white powder Kipo and it, um, it affected their health, their nervous system, God knows what else. And it also, even when they washed their clothes, it, you know, it, it infected, it fouled up their washing machines and discharged ketone, more ketone into the water from the waste from their washing machines and so on and so forth. And many of them got sick enough to go see a doctor and most of the doctors didn't know what they were dealing with either. So they just kind of said, you know, take a pill or get some rest or what have you. And finally, one doctor in Hopewell took a blood sample from one of these workers and sent it off to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, a federal agency, which analyzed the blood sample and went, holy cow, we got a health emergency up there in Virginia because the, the counts uh, of the levels of ketone, a very complex um, carbonaceous hydrocarbon type chemical were off the charts. They'd never seen anything like that. So they called this doctor and said, uh, where does this come from? Where did this fella get all this stuff in his system? And we told them, and they told the state health department, and the state health department shut down the little operation called Life Sciences Products, which had been a spin-off from Allied Chemical Company. And um, that's what started the unraveling of the ketone pollution in Virginia. It was not found by the regulatory agencies, it was found by a doctor who took a blood sample of one of the workers, and that led eventually to um, shutting down the plant, uh, shutting down the river, and eventually in the trial in the federal court, producing fish, frozen fish evidence, when Allied tried to say in so many words that, gee, we never did that, it was these guys after we spun them off, uh, they found fish samples in the Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences um, freezers that had been taken from that area. And when they took them out, cut them open and examined, they found that they were loaded with ketone from the years and the fish caught in years when Allied was operating the plant. At which point, I understand, I mean, I wasn't a participant in the trial, so I don't have firsthand evidence, but the stories I heard were uh, the jig was up and Allied folded its pace and pled no contest to 940 some odd counts of polluting the James River insecticide and the judge, Judge Robert R. Marriage, who was the senior judge for the Eastern District of the Federal Court of, Virginia, of the United States, threw the book at them, fined them 13.24 million, which was the maximum amount he could find them, and then um, gave them 120 days to think about how that fine might be turned into something more useful that would do some good for Virginia and its citizens who were the ones harmed, rather than just sending 13 and a quarter million dollars off to Washington where uh, it wouldn't do Virginia any good. And so by this time, it was late 76, and the endowment was created officially on February 1st, 1977, when the judge reconvened uh, the court and accepted Allies' voluntary offer to put up $8 million to start 
and a new environmental fund for Virginia to be called Virginia Environmental Endowment that the judge, Judge Marriage, would appoint the board of directors of. And um, although he didn't have to, Judge Marriage reduced their fine from 13.24 to 5.24 going to Washington, and he kept $8 million in Virginia to do some good through the endowment. <clears throat> and what's really interesting about that is, of course, the state, which had been absent without leave uh, on this case, they never saw it coming, they never detected it, they never did anything until they were you know, forced into a health emergency, um, actually sent a representative to the U.S. Attorney, William Cummings, who had actually prosecuted the case in federal court himself. You know, usually they have assistant U.S. attorneys to do this, but Bill Cummings did it himself, and very effectively, as it turns out. Um, but the state, you know, didn't quite get what the judge had in mind, and literally, uh, after the court case was, you know, the settlement was announced on February 1st, sometimes shortly thereafter, according to Bill Cummings, who told me this story, someone from the Attorney General's office made an appointment to come see him, and uh, the judge had appointed Bill to be the chairman of the endowment's board. So both in his U.S. attorney capacity and as chairman of the endowment board, the attorney general's office of Virginia <clears throat> sent someone to uh, go over and ask for the money. And Bill said, uh, what? And um, they said, well, you know, it's to benefit Virginia. We're the Virginia attorney general, so give us a check for $8 million and, you know, let's get out of here. And to his great credit, Bill and perhaps the other board members by then had been appointed, I don't know, but he basically told them no and um, said this is to create an environmental foundation for Virginia, independent of the state, independent of ally, and uh, that's what we're going to do with it. And he told me in this note he sent me not long ago, he said, can you imagine how things would have turned out if we just turned that eight million over to the state. They would have probably tried to clean up the James River a little bit with it and nobody ever would have benefited because it wouldn't have been enough money to do the job. It would have let Allied Chemical off the hook, as it were. And all the wonderful things that the endowment has done in the past 32 years would never have happened, perhaps. And he said, it's just an amazing little turning point in the story, but it's such an important one that he had the wisdom and the foresight to see what the endowment could be and do, rather than just turning that $8 million over to the government, where the judge made sure it wasn't, it wasn't intended to go in the first place. So he deserves a lot of credit for making the first very important decision the endowment ever made, which was to stay in business and go do something worthwhile. Isn't that a story? It's a wonderful. I'm wondering, um, as far as the cleanup of the James, I guess the state already had um, people that monitored? Well, they started looking a lot harder because once they identified Keepone as a problem, then they found it. <clears throat> but having not known it was a problem, having never heard of it, uh, you could say that uh, there's no reason they should have found it because they didn't know anything about it. Uh, but that's a bit of a red herring, too, uh, because one of the first things that came out as a result of the Keepone trial in federal court was a new state law setting up a toxic substances registry. And that meant that every discharger of toxic substances in Virginia 
into the air or water had to report annually to the state health department saying what kind of junk they were discharging. And this had never been done before in any state, and certainly not in the federal government. So Virginia pioneered that, and it was a direct consequence of not knowing what was being dumped into the river or the air, with ketone being the prime example. So the Toxic Substances Information Act, I think it was called, um, was passed in 1977 or 78. And um, ironically, at first, it was secret. <laughs> the, way, the only way they could get it through the legislature, which wasn't very excited about doing this, um, was that, okay, the industries and everybody else affected by this would submit the information, but the state health department had to keep it secret so that we wouldn't know, but they would know. Trust us, we're the government. And uh, that eventually changed, and now every year uh, you can see the annual report of the toxic release inventory, and usually the Times-Dispatch in Richmond publishes a list of the biggest emitters of toxic substances every year when that list is made public. So that is another um, heritage um, or consequence, whatever you want to call it, uh, byproduct of the Keepone Federal Pollution Trial is that Virginia has had a toxic substances disclosure law since the late 70s. And then the federal government followed shortly thereafter with the Toxic Substances Control Act. But it was Virginia that pioneered the way, and it was strictly because of the Keepone mess. And so how did you step into your role at Well, um, as uh, noted, I was chairman and administrator of the Council on the Environment, which was concerned, as I said, with coordinating policy matters and making sure all these agencies were running in the same direction at roughly the same speed and working with each other, uh, but also pioneering, you know, subjects that were the partial responsibility of several but the overall responsibility of none of them, such as land use and power plant siting and big issues like that. Um, so in, in a sense, I was the most comprehensively knowledgeable person, you might say, about Virginia's environmental issues. And when the endowment board wanted um, to start up, um, they were all very smart people with wide knowledge inventories, but none of them was really that knowledgeable about environmental issues per se. And the judge made that very clear in his initial appointments and in every subsequent one is that he wanted really smart people with wide knowledge inventories who were independent, who would not be uh, beholden to any industry or any interest group or anything. And so um, they then said, well, what we need is someone who understands the issues. And that wound up this case being me. And uh, it was a great group, uh, especially to begin with, um, because we had wonderful people such as Judge Henry McKenzie down in Portsmouth, who had just recently retired as a circuit court judge and knew actually a fair amount about state water law. And we had Sidney and Francis Lewis, the uh, Richmond philanthropists and business people who were so smart and so much fun to work with. We had Tom Wolfe, um, the noted Virginia author, and uh, Kathy Douglas, the um, widow of um, Supreme Court Justice Douglas. We had um, Admiral Ross Bullard, who was the head of the Coast Guard uh, for all of Hampton Roads before he retired. We 
Georgie Owl, who was a president of a bank here in Richmond. So we had a really good representation of smart, knowledgeable people. And, uh, and they let me do the, the substance of the work, and they provided the overall perspective, judgment, and help so that what we did, I always like to say about the endowment board, and it continues to this day, is that there's never an idea that I put on the table that didn't get better by the time they got through talking about it. And if you've ever served on a nonprofit board, you know how rare that is uh, to happen. Um, but the endowment board for three decades plus now has uh, personified that value uh, extraordinarily well. It's, it's just an amazing group of people that we've had over the years. There's been about 21, 22 people, I guess, who have served on a seven-member board at any given, over, over that period of time. And, um, they were all appointed by Judge Marriage until very recently when he died. And uh, boy, he sure picked some wonderful people. So what were the first things that you turned to? At the endowment. Well, that was, that was a very interesting um, question because, um, you know, you have this money and you have this charge to improve the quality of Virginia's environment, and you also had a charge from the, from the judge saying, don't you dare do anything that would relieve Allied of any of its responsibilities. So um, we literally met and said, well, what do we do now? And, uh, so I started educating the board about some of the issues and we convened a series of meetings with experts from the state, from federal agencies, from nonprofit groups, uh, and we got quite a, uh, a boatload of, of advice um, from all kinds of people, literally from A to Z, um, from animals to um, zoology and mining and water pollution and air pollution and land conservation and just a whole host of things. And we decided after several months of doing this from June through December, we had I think six or seven board meetings during that time, including meetings with all these different kinds of experts. And then we had a retreat and we discussed it and we sorted out the possibilities and we eventually settled on three initial priorities uh, the first being consistent with our creation, uh, toxic substances and water quality, that was one. Number two was environmental law and policy, because we saw that the law was clearly inadequate to deal with some of the situations that were occurring, and that public policy on the environment uh, with respect to all of that could stand some improvement in Virginia. And finally, um, and this was one of the great strokes of genius of the board, I think. They said, you know, it's our observation in talking with all these people and listening to what they have to say and, and knowing people as we do with our wide circle of friends, acquaintances, and business colleagues, and so on, that most people would certainly agree with the statement that they want a clean environment. They, they prefer clean water to dirty water. They want clean air rather than dirty air. They don't want to have to worry when they turn on the tap in their kitchen sink that the water's going to kill them or do them serious upset. Um, where we learn that people disagree is how that might be done and who ought to pay for it. And so working with that insight, they said, we think if we work to get people together and talk, get them in the same room, we can find 
answers to complex environmental issues that would bring the best knowledge from all different points of view together and work out not compromises, but effective action that people can buy into. So one of the first things we did was open a bank account and put $25,000 in it and advertise it to say, anybody who thinks they've got a good way to mediate and resolve environmental conflicts, come talk to us about using this money to do that. That was a truly original idea. Uh, unfortunately, nobody came forward right away, so we were thinking, well, maybe it really is a visionary idea that you know we're onto something, but nobody knows quite how to do it. So I set out to find out more about it, and I discovered that, in fact, very few people knew anything about it, and that there was this one fellow out in the state of Washington named Jerry Cormick, Dr. Jerry Cormick, who had been a labor um, mediator, negotiator, resolving labor management issues, and being from the state of Washington, uh, he, uh, of course, loves the out of doors and said, you know, I think I could make this work in the environmental arena. And he coined the phrase uh, environmental mediation. And I heard about him, tracked him down, invited him to come to Virginia, and we met with him. And it was wonderful to hear what he thought about environmental mediation as a way of resolving complex environmental disputes. So we then adopted as our third priority the notion of environmental conflict resolution, environmental mediation, and then set out a competitive process where we invited uh, several universities and others to submit proposals to see how they would carry out that idea. And we did that for a couple of years and evaluated the results and eventually chose the University of Virginia because, among other things, they had established uh, a good track record in that couple of years, and the university itself was willing to match our funds. And so we created the Institute for Environmental Negotiation at the University of Virginia in 1980, perhaps 81 at the late, but I think it was 1980, um, where it has flourished ever since. And it was, I think, might have been the first certainly the first based at a state university in the country, environmental mediation center in the country. Uh, but even before that, I have to say, um, philanthropy itself was not exactly a big business in the 1977. And uh, here we were to be an environmental philanthropy. And uh, I called a national association of philanthropists called the Council on Foundations and I said, you know, we've just been created out of thin air. None of us has ever run a foundation before. Um, what are we supposed to do? What are the legal requirements? Uh, how, do you, how do you do philanthropy in an organized way? Uh, you don't just stick your hand out an open window and drop $10 bills on the street and see what happens. So um, they sent us a wonderful gentleman by the name of Gene Struckoff. Uh, Gene was their vice president for developing foundations and assisting them and so on and so forth. And I just finished writing a big tome on um, how to do effective community foundation work. And in effect, we were sort of a statewide community foundation for the environment. So what he knew and what we intended to be were not all that radically different. So we invited him to meet with us for a couple of days. 
And he was just as generous and wonderful and practical as he could be, and he gave us all kinds of information, both in meeting with us and in writing, and it, it really helped us enormously to understand the various roles an effective philanthropy could pursue, uh, not just making contributions to favorite causes, but to making a difference, making things happen, developing an agenda, pursuing it with priorities, knowing where you want to go, telling people where you want to go, inviting proposals to respond to that set of priorities, and then finding funding and encouraging really good people to make good things happen. And that's what we've been about since day one. And I really do have to give um, uh, the Council on Foundations and Mr. Struckoff a lot of credit for making sure we got off to an effective start that way. It made all the difference in the world for us to operate as a private philanthropy would without being shackled by some of the rules of it because private philanthropies are under a special section of the Internal Revenue call, Code uh, called Section 501c3 and a private foundation has various reporting requirements, various tax requirements, and various limitations on how much it must give away at the minimum and um, who it can give it to and so on and so forth. We are a 501c4 organization and we operate as a private philanthropy as it were, but we, in terms of the best practices, but we are not constrained by how much we can give away in any year or how little we can give away in any year. And uh, we don't pay an excise tax, which is nice also. Um, the reason for that, by the way, was to make absolutely double sure that we were not considered a private philanthropy, a private foundation set up by Allied Chemical Company with that money. So the 501c4 designation as a, quote, social welfare organization um, ensured that we were not a private foundation and wouldn't have anything to do with Allied. And in fact, the bylaws also stated that no one associated with Allied could ever serve on the board of directors of the endowment. So we were completely independent. And I, if I had to pick one of the words that the judge felt most strongly about was it, it would be independence. He really wanted the endowment to be a freestanding, independent organization without owing anybody anything and having the freedom to pursue the agenda set by the board of directors that he appointed. And he never told us what to do either which, considering the authority he had to appoint the board, is quite remarkable. And I would meet with him from time to time to, of course, tell him what we were doing. And the only thing he ever said was, great, keep up the good work, doing a great job. He never said, I think you ought to do this instead of that. Nothing ever like that happened, which was truly freeing to all of us to do what we thought was best. And he had great confidence in the people he appointed, and he had great confidence in me. And um, as a result, we set off on a course that continues to this day, that the priorities have evolved over time, but the mission to improve the quality of Virginia's environment by promoting pollution prevention, natural resource conservation, and environmental literacy has pretty much been the overall guiding vision since the beginning. We owe a lot to the judge for giving us the freedom to do that and to carry out that mission as best we saw it, rather than how 
he or allied or the state or anybody else might have seen it. And finally, I will say, with respect to our role as a philanthropy, when we were created in 1977, we instantly became the only foundation in the country devoted 100% to environmental philanthropy. There are others, such as Ford and Rockefeller, to pick two well-known examples that did some environmental grant making as part of their work, but we were the only one to do 100% of our grant making on the environment. And that's changed now, thankfully. There are many more foundations around that give money to the environment, both as a part of their philanthropy and, in some cases, as the totality of their philanthropy. And it's been great to see so many um, come into the field. And there's even an Environmental Grant Makers Association uh, in philanthropy these days, which, by the way, uh, the endowment and three other foundations helped to establish back in the early mid-80s um, because we wanted, we were lonely, we wanted more philanthropies to start spending money on the environment. Uh, nationally, environmental philanthropy constituted less than 2% of all grant making. Now, in, in recent years, it's been closer to 5%. Um, you know, that's part of the leverage of our grant making as well because we realized we couldn't do this by ourselves and we wanted to induce and encourage and attract other grant makers to get into the environmental field. And uh, the numbers show that that's true. Judge Marriage, I'm not aware if anyone has attempted a biography of his life, but possibly you might say that his contribution of this environmental uh, progress was one of his Oh, it's one, of his, it's one of its greatest uh, legacies so far, accomplishment and a legacy. Uh, there is a professor at the University of Richmond Law School who I believe, if it's not a biography, it's certainly a lengthy article about the judge. You might want to check that out at some point. Um, and there have been various symposia held at the University of Richmond Law School. In fact, we set up the Robert R. Marriage Jr. Environmental Law Center at the University of Richmond's Law School back in 1985 or 6 or 7, somewhere in there, for the express purpose, we hoped, that they would take um, the judge as an inspiration, since he was a graduate of that law school, um, and promote environmental law. And, and they've done some of that. They started, uh, I think they were the first law school in the country to require all first-year students to take a one-semester course in environmental law. And they certainly have other courses available to the students in the environmental field. Um, and the Marriage Center does have an annual symposium where they invite knowledgeable experts to come together and talk about some environmental topic. And it's, a, it's an area that I hope they will do more with as their endowment grows over time. We gave them $150,000 challenge grant, they had to match that, so 22 or three years ago they had raised $300,000 altogether, so presumably it's a lot more than that by now, uh, since they only spend 4 or 5% of it each year, even with the recent setbacks in the world of the investments, uh, they should still be worth more than $300,000 by now. I have no idea, of course, um, but uh, I continue to encourage them. 
ask questions about your board. Has the role of the board been the same throughout your 30-some years? Yes, the board, uh, I, I, could, I could give you an anecdote or two. For example, Mrs. Lewis, who is just one of the most interesting people I know, um, I did something, I made a mistake of some kind. Um, and it was obvious at a board meeting that I, I messed up somehow, I apologized and I said, you know, I've already fixed it, but you need to know that I, I made a mistake here. And she said, oh, Sherry, don't worry about that. The goal in life is to make new mistakes. <laughs> Meaning, of course, you learn from your old ones and you continue to take risks and press the envelope and be out there. You know, every grant we make is not going to be a success. We, we wouldn't be taking any risks if, if we didn't do that. So she was very good. But she personified this attitude about um, we really want to push the envelope. We want to be visionary. We want to know what needs to be happening five years from now and make grants to see that that happens. And so we've always done that. And as I already said, you know, almost anything I ever proposed got better by the time they got through talking about it, and that's still true today. The other thing they do is that they are, they operate at the proper board level. They don't micromanage. They, they trust me to do my job and my assistant to do her job. And as long as we're making good recommendations and defending things that we don't think we ought to do, and they always question me about that at every board meeting. Of course, obviously, my, my style has been to review all the proposals we get in any given round, and then of the ones that I think ought to be funded, I write up a one-page summary, which is very important for them because they're very busy people and they need to get it in a minute or less. And if they don't, they won't. They're not going to read a whole proposal. But over the years, I've learned how to digest the most complex proposal into plain English that says, here's the import of this. Here's why it needs to be done. Here's exactly what they would do. Here's who would do what and how much it would cost and how much I think we ought to put into it. And that gets done on one page. And for however many grants I recommend at each board meeting, that's what they see. They also see the full list, including the ones that I'm not recommending. And they will sometimes ask, well, why don't you think we ought to do this? I would explain my reasoning, and I think in all but one or two cases, <laughs> there's one in particular which I'm not sure I should go into, but one board member a dozen or so years ago felt this one grant that I wasn't recommending was important and that we really ought to do it. And I had good reasons for not doing it because I knew the guy who was proposing to do it and I knew he would not be able to do it. And he was blowing smoke at us, and uh, but this board member said, well, I just think this is really important. I really think we ought to do this. And everybody said, okay, do you have any problem with that? I said, well, you know, I don't think we ought to do it, but you're the board, and you're the final decision maker. And that's another thing. I have never let them forget that while I present recommendations, they are the decision maker. So they decided to fund that grant, and within a year, the whole thing had gone absolutely nowhere. And this one board member and I have never stopped joking about that one. I mean, we've always had a good laugh over it because um, he thought surely it would be a great idea and I thought surely it would be a bust. And it turns out in that case, I was the one who was right, which is not always the case, I assure you, but it, it was a, a, an interesting example. Uh, so they don't approve, and sometimes they turn down things that I recommend. Uh, 
Judge Marriage, was he ever a member of the board? No. No, no. no. Mm -mm. But up until the last, you know, until he died, uh, he appointed board members. Now the board selects its own members. And we have two board members now who are the first two who, are, who were not appointed by Judge Merritt. But we think they meet all the criteria that he would have. We think the highest compliment I can pay them is that I think he would have chosen them. It seems that your board members maybe serve longer than. Yes, they don't have, well, they have fixed terms of four years. Um, <laughs> and they changed the bylaws to say that any board member appointed by Judge Marriage can serve for an unlimited number of terms, but the ones who've been selected by the board are limited to two four-year terms. <laughs> and um, I think they're looking over the long run as um, the judge-appointed board members rotate off. They want to see some fresh blood periodically thereafter. As long as the judge was alive and he knew who he was putting on that board, there wasn't any reason, unless he had a reason, not to reappoint someone um, to have them go off the board. Unless they said, you know, I've done enough. And, and several over the years have said, you know, eight years is enough, or 12 years, or 10 years, or whatever it's been. Um, the first one to leave um, was, I believe, Judge McKenzie, who had served, I think, eight years or thereabouts. And um, he might have, it might have been nine, I, I don't really remember, but he'd served for quite a while in the, from the beginning, and he said, I want to get out before I start dribbling and mumbling and making a fool of myself, because he was in his late 60s when he was appointed, and uh, I'm happy to say, while he is not in 100% great health right now, he will very shortly be celebrating his 100th birthday. So he got out when he was... I think in his late 70s or maybe 80 at most and, um, and was very gracious to do so and sort of I don't know if he set a pattern exactly but he, uh, he he let everybody know that he didn't think people should serve forever or past the point where they would be making a contribution in his case he was entirely too modest because I had dinner with him last December on the occasion of his 99th birthday, and he was doing just fine then. Uh, so. So the board actually selects its future members. Yes, it does. So when the VEE started and you were ready to, um, I guess, advertise that you were gonna have a grant um, awarding institution, what type of grants did you first say that you wanted to receive? Or was there uh, several different categories that were established in the beginning of types of grants well, there, proposals? There, there was especially these first two, toxic substances and water quality was one subject or topic, and the other was uh, environmental law and public policy. And then, of course, we had set up the mediation initiative, but that was sort of a special initiative of the endowment. But by letting people know what we're interested, we'd get mostly proposals that were responsive to that, which is one of the secrets of effective grant making. Um, some, very, very few, only solicit proposals. They don't let anybody just send them anything. They say, 
we're going to develop a request for proposals. It's a formal document that lists what the problem is, what the need is, what possible approaches might work, and then invites universities, research institutions, nonprofits, anybody to submit proposals formally that are then evaluated and some are chosen to be funded and off they go. Hardly any foundation does this, but some do. Uh, a lot of general purpose foundations just say, we're here for the improvement of humanity or arts in general. And so they get all kinds of proposals um, spanning the gamut of human interests. And in our case, we are uniquely focused on the environment. And then within the environment, we have specified priority areas that we want to focus on at any given time. And over the years, people have learned not to um, send us proposals that are not responsive to our priorities because for the most part, we don't fund them if it's not responsive to what we're trying to do. Now, we're also not so smart that we have thought of everything, so we also make exceptions. And once in a while, we'll get a, an idea that is not part of our priorities, but it's such a great idea that we would fund it. In fact, the very first real big grant we made in December of 77 was exactly that. We had done all this homework, had all these meetings, set these priorities, told people what we wanted to hear, and the Nature Conservancy came in instead with a proposal to launch their eastern shore operations on the eastern shore of Virginia, where they own several, quite a few of the barrier islands off the shore, but did not have a resident office and program out there to manage and protect and promote uh, those islands' conservation. So they came to us with a request for a challenge grant to do that. And to our great delight, <laughs> even though land conservation wasn't really one of our two or three priorities at the time, uh, we made a $150,000 challenge grant, which in 1977 would be the equivalent of about almost a half a million dollars today. So it was a really, really big challenge grant, and uh, they not only met it, but they raised about $300,000 to match it. So that program got off to a very, very fine start, but it proved another watchword uh, beyond independence that I've always liked to use to describe the board's function and how we operate is that it's flexibility. Uh, we are smart enough to know we don't know everything we need to know. So when somebody comes in with a great idea that's really gonna make a difference, we're, we remain open to it. And from the get-go, that has been true with that grant to the Nature Conservancy for the Eastern Shore. And we have done that periodically over the years. We've seen other examples of, of um, proposals that we didn't have on our radar, but which turned out to be pretty good ideas. Uh, fortunately, and, I, and I've looked back through our history and all the grants we've made, and every year I did this, really, so that's why I'm confident in what I'm about to say, we really did put our money where our mouth was. If we said toxic substances and water quality or environmental law and public policy and eventually building the conservation community in Virginia or a land conservation or protecting the Chesapeake Bay or um, 
improving the state's commitment to funding its natural resource responsibilities. Whatever we've set our priorities have been, by and large, that's where we have made the grants. So we've done what we said we were going to do, and a lot of them have worked out very well and made a huge difference. Not everyone, of course, but a lot. And I think the leadership that we've provided in helping to set the environmental agenda in Virginia in terms of what's important, what needs to happen, how to get it done, finding good people to help get it done, has probably been one of the biggest contributions the endowment has made over the years. Everybody seems to get the fact that we do take the long view and we try to put money into the long-term conservation of Virginia's environment and to leverage, which is the third word I would say, beyond independence and flexibility, we're highly leveraged, not just in requiring matching funds for what we do, but in terms of what those funds then accomplish. For example, um, one simple one was a scientific research project that we funded with the Virginia Institute of Marine Science that was looking at the effects of chlorine discharge, chlorine is being used as part of the sewage treatment plant processes. And in oyster growing areas, years ago when we had oyster growing areas, um, chlorine discharge was killing the oysters and it wasn't a good idea. So we funded some research to see what might be done about that. And the results were so conclusive that the State Water Control Board banned chlorine from being used in sewage treatment plants going forward. So that's one example. Another example more recently is we put up several hundred thousand dollars over a few years to promote a group to partnership among business and conservation groups to persuade the legislature and the governor to put more money into natural resource conservation, more state money. And in recent years, that, let's say, half million dollars total that we might have put into that organization and getting that job done has produced something over $600 million in new state funds invested in land conservation, water quality improvements, and the like. And now that's huge, huge leverage when you can do something like that. And there have been other examples along the way, but uh, independence, flexibility, leverage, excellence goes without saying, but you might say that's a fourth word to characterize our work. And um, persistent. You know, I really do value persistence. You can get a lot done if you stick to it. Uh, year after year, uh, I remember some of these older fellows when I first joined Governor Holton's um, administration, they looked at a young guy like me and say in so many words, well, we'll still be here when you're gone, kiddo. And I've outlived them all so far <laughs> and uh, still here. We're glad you've outlived them. Thank you. <laughs> and the volume of Grant proposals has just increased? No, it, it, it varies. Um, you know, some years are better than others or more than others. Um, in the early years, we got perhaps more because people would send us all kinds of things that didn't really relate to our priorities. So um, I, I always found it curious that in my dealings with colleagues around the country on philanthropy, they measured activity rather than accomplishment. 
for example, one of the first things people would say is, how many proposals did you get this year? And I said, yeah, I don't know, 75 or 80? Oh, is that all? We got 934. As if that was something to be proud of. And I said, well, that's an awful lot of work. How do you sort out those 934 into actually funding choices that make a difference? And that usually stopped them. And you know, then they'd say, well, we funded 10% of those or 5% of those. And I said, well, isn't that a lot of effort to go through to fund 5%? And I learned really quickly that it was better to focus on priorities and get proposal, get fewer proposals, more responsive to what you really wanted to do, rather than crow about a lot of irrelevant proposals that just created a lot of paperwork for everybody that didn't have anything to do with what you were trying to do. So in our case, we've never counted the number of proposals as anything that's relevant to our work. What we count are the grants we've made and what's happened as a result of those. That's what matters. How do you make things happen and you do that? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, by their deeds you shall know them. It's by their grants is how you should evaluate philanthropies. What do they do with their money? Does it make a difference? How can you be the watchdog? How much reporting is done by the institution that receives your money? Just regular reporting? Oh, yes. In fact, in that, we were also a bit of a pioneer, I understand, because I don't think anybody else was doing this when we started it many years ago. But from the get-go, we adopted a policy of, um, for the most part, paying our grants out on a reimbursable basis so that there was a built-in incentive for the grantee to give us both a narrative report that demonstrated they were actually doing what they proposed to do and a financial report that showed how they were spending the money versus the budget they had submitted and that we had approved for the grant. And if there was any discrepancy between what they said they were going to do and how they were going to do it and what they were doing, we would not pay them. So that's happened very, very rarely. Most people figured out pretty quickly that we were serious and we said, if we're giving you money to do this according to this budget, then, you know, that's what we expect you to do. It's really quite simple. So then we would get reports, whether quarterly or every four months. Each one I like to call custom-made grants. You know, we'd sit down and we'd negotiate with the grantee organization about what we wanted and how we wanted it, and then that would be the terms of the grant, and that's what they would have to abide by. And it's very professional. It's very transparent. You'll see that when you look through the grant files. You'll see progress reports, narrative, and financial. And you'll see that most of the time they match up very well with what the proposal says because those grant files have the proposal as well as the progress reports and the final report. So as a consequence, we built a reputation for being a very professionally run organization that you could depend on. If you did what you said you were going to do, you could depend on us to give you the money to do it. And um, until recently, that was a good financial strategy too because we were, in effect, holding off spending our money by at least a quarter or two at a time, rather than handing it out in a big chunk. The way a lot of foundations, they write you a check and say, good luck. And, oh, by the way, maybe tell us about it in a year or what happened. Well, we've never done that. We've always been 
what, what the professionals call uh, a formative evaluation process. And that means you do these quarterly progress reports and you make adjustments. If as you go along you discover that, oh, you know, new information or changing circumstances has led us to make a change in how we're going to carry out this grant, then you say, great, you know, that only improves matters. Uh, but it's a conscious choice and, and decision that we both have to agree on. And then they go forward and do it that way. And in a way, we evaluate every grant with every progress report. And every final report, you know, requires them to do certain things as well. And, and I think that served us very, very well over the years. And I, I've been very pleased to have a lot of organizations tell us that um, it's so much fun and so easy to work with the endowment because everybody knows what to expect up front. And, uh, and they, they value that. There's no surprises. What is your um, schedule for the year? Right now, it's twice a year, December 1st and um, I think June 15th. Um, we invite proposals anytime, but if we get them by those dates, then we will act on them at the next semi-annual board meeting. So if you get us a proposal not later than December 1st, we'll deal with it at our April meeting, and if you get us one by June 15th, we'll deal with it at our October meeting. And that we promise to do. which people also appreciate and uh, we used to do it four times a year but we, we found that we could get away with doing it twice a year without really harming anyone and saved us a little bit of money. Have you had enough staff to help you with the process? Well yes uh, we used to have three people on staff altogether and for the last decade we've had two uh, that being me and system. And somehow we managed to get it all done. Um, people are sometimes surprised by that, but I mean, that's a product of experience too. You know, uh, someone who was just starting out, who'd never done any of this before, you know, would probably find it hard to be as effective right away. There's just so much to learn. And, and my job also entails looking at the financial side of things as well, you know, monitoring the investments on it regular basis and seeing how that side of the operation is going. Um, that's not typical. Most foundation executive directors um, are not as involved with the investment side as perhaps I have come to be over the years just because that's the way the board likes it. I mean, we have an investment committee and they meet regularly and we talk regularly, but um, it's um, if we were starting from scratch today, we'd probably do that a little differently. Um, we did have investment managers that we hired and you know, monitored and whatnot, but most of them, frankly, were not even doing as well as the market averages were, so we changed our approach and got rid of them. And at least lately, the last decade, we've been investing mostly in index funds so that we know on any given day, you just look it up on a computer how did your fund do? Uh, you can tell from one day to the next uh, whether you made money or lost money that day. Not that you need to monitor it on a daily basis, but for example, September 30th was a month end and a quarter end, so I always look on October 1st, let's say, to see how we were as of September 30th. 
and this year we were at September 30th, we were $14.326 million, let's say, which is pretty close to exactly where we were. Yesterday, the market dropped quite a bit. So I looked this morning just to see how much money we'd lost overnight, and we were down $238,000, which is almost our administrative budget for the year. But I'm hoping today we'll gain that back. I mean, so you, you can't. You cannot monitor these paper changes day by day, but because it was the end of a quarter and because there was such a big drop, I did look at it two days in a row because I was curious, and we have a board meeting on Monday, and they need to know where we are financially. What other roles do you have? Oh, um, You've got the this, investment side, you've got... The grant-making side, yes. the, the, the setting the helping to define our priorities side, the, you know, the doing the homework, the research to say, here's, here's where the needs are these days. Um, but there's also, um, the way we've operated, and because of my unique background, I think you could say the largest grant the endowment has made is making me available as a resource to uh, the state and to the environmental community, to agencies so that I have always been encouraged by the board to serve on boards and commissions, and not ones we give money to, but for example, I'm a member of the Commonwealth Transportation Board and have been since 2002. And when you see what that group is responsible for, billions of dollars in roads and bridges and uh, rail and transit every year, and how that affects the environment and how of late, um, the state has tried to make a better connection between land use and transportation. I mean, this is right up our alley. This is one of the key priorities we've been focused on for the last several years. So I get not only the opportunity to participate as a grant maker in trying to affect that public policy and make things happen, but as a state policy maker as well, sitting on the transportation board, encouraging and voting for changes that improve link between transportation and land use decisions, which transportation is a state decision, land use is a local decision, and trust me, they are not on the same planet. And the link is being forged, but it is a very, very slow, complex process because um, they're just two different elements of two different levels of government with two different sets of priorities. And, um, and yet the two, the intersection between how we fund transportation and how we approve suburban developments is, is so obvious and crucial that it has to be linked. So that's slowly happening, but it is a challenge. And uh, so that's an example of how else, and there's been many instances of that over the years, various boards I've served on. How much do you ever interact with legislators? It depends. Uh, several of them who were more involved in environmental issues, I interact with a fair amount over the years. As a general rule, I, I don't go up to the legislature very often anymore because, frankly, we make grants to people who wind up doing some of that as part of their grant work. So I did that for seven years for Governor Holton and then for Governor Godwin and for the first couple of years when the endowment was getting started. And that, frankly, was enough to last a lifetime. It's a 24-7 job if you do it right when the legislature is in town, and there's a lot of work to do when they're not in town. So 
that was another leverage example that we figured we could leverage my knowledge more effectively by making grants to groups like the James River Association, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, the Southern Environmental Law Center, and others who, as part of their work, will do that kind of lobbying and public policy work uh, with the General Assembly. As an aside, do you have an assessment of, are you pleased to see more people elected to office that do have these concerns about the environment? I'm not sure I've seen that many, to tell you the truth. I mean, for the longest time in the state Senate, there was one senator you could count on, uh, Joe Gartland from Fairfax, and in the House for 18 years. And he was there for 30 years, I think, 32 years, 32 years. Um, in the House, uh, Taylor Murphy was there for 18 years. Uh, after that, it was up to them to persuade their colleagues to do the right thing. There are very few who, I would say, have made the environment a priority. It's not that they don't like it necessarily, or they would vote against it. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. But uh, right now in the legislature, there, um, there's nobody who has obviously succeeded those two. Delegate Al Albert Pollard, who actually succeeded Taylor Murphy in his seat is one who's doing a very good job, but he's still new. In the Senate, I'm not sure there's anyone who's ever stepped up to fill Joe Gartland's shoes on the environment. Um, again, it's not to say that they're not legislators who will vote the right way, because there are, but in terms of providing leadership, uh, that's really more a gubernatorial function. If you don't have gubernatorial leadership on the environment, it's very hard to get new things done or change existing laws and policies. We will turn uh, in a few minutes to maybe looking at very specific um, projects that you have funded. Um, in 2000, you wrote a memo to your board and you were kind of assessing the last 23 years and you said that you'd uh, written really four chapters. The first, focusing on mediation to resolve complex environmental disputes and the creation of the Institute for Environmental Negotiation at UVA. Chapter two, working directly with the governor, Governor Robb, on the Commission on the Future of Virginia. And um, let's see, the results of chapter two were the passage of the Chesapeake Bay Protection Act, the Hazardous Waste Facility Siting Act, and several changes to in-stream flow legislation. Chapter three, focus on the strengthening of the environmental citizen movement. Funds from BEE helped in the starting of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, James River Association, Southern Environmental Law Center, the Nature Conservancy, and several of the Friends of the River groups. And lastly, chapter four, um, you had written a program in community-based conservation, promoting citizens to collaborate, and uh, a lot more environmental business and government interest. Um, I believe you, you promoted public opinion surveys. And so what is chapter five after that time period in the year 2000? Have there been many chapters since? There have been at least three, uh, and, and they don't have hard and fast dates to them, they're, they're sort of like a good book in the sense that, you know, characters continue and uh, 
while priorities and plot shifts occur, you always are building on the chapter that came before. And so um, it, it's cumulative rather than um, sequential. Nonetheless, you can identify certain other things, such as our emphasis on land conservation, um, which started in the late 80s, I'd say, in earnest, um, where we helped form land trusts in local areas around the state. Or we didn't so much help form them, but we did help them stand up on their feet. There might have been a bunch of volunteers who needed help in sponsoring programs to get experts to come talk about land conservation and how to do it and how to do easements and things of that sort uh, and we helped uh, initiate a statewide association of land trusts and we brought in the national land trust association to help train local land trusts and work with the state and that sort of thing and promoted um, the land trust movement in virginia in several ways and that, again, was a result of talking to some experts and saying, what could we really usefully do in Virginia here to promote the land trust movement? Uh, also, and, and sort of as an undercurrent to that during the last 20 years at least, has been the subject of environmental education, where we've worked with the State Environmental Education Office, the State Department of Education, made grants to local teachers and schools for outdoor classrooms and things of that sort to get kids out into the real world to learn about nature and why it's so important to their health and welfare and livelihood. Um, another big initiative occurred right around 2001, uh, which was uh, defining a new way of managing Chesapeake Bay fisheries for, for forever. The management of the Chesapeake Bay fishery has been premised on mostly how many did you catch last year? And then they'd say you can have more or less this year based on what? I don't know other than how many you caught last year. And, and let's say you caught 100,000 of a certain species. Well, was that the next to last 100,000 or was that 100,000 out of 10 million? Nobody was really quite sure. And in the Chesapeake Bay Agreement of 2000, signed by the governors of the Bay States and the EPA, um, they agreed to develop a plan to manage the Chesapeake Bay fishery on a multi-species, ecosystem-based basis, a whole new paradigm, which the scientists were beginning to figure out needed to be done. But the managers, the state agencies, um, they didn't know how to do it. So it was really a goal rather than a commitment, uh, although it's written as a commitment. And we looked at that and we said, well, you know, these guys are never gonna do this unless we help them. So we made a study over several months talking with scientists and managers throughout the Bay region and concluded that the best thing we could do was to give the Virginia Institute of Marine Science significant money to develop a team to develop a multi-species ecosystem-based program for defining and managing, and uh, we put up $639,000 over three years, and then added another, I forget, almost 200,000 maybe for another two more years after that. And as a result, VIMS now has the best scientific research team on this subject and is 
that again leveraged the participation of Maryland and um, the EPA and uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, all of which are big players in the Bay fishery management business. And now they're actually pursuing that. Whereas without, frankly, our stimulus funding for it, I think the idea would have languished through most of this decade. So that was yet another chapter. And then within a year or so of starting that, we realized that, you know, you, you do this long enough and you start seeing the same issues come up over and over and you start seeing um, the same arguments made over and over and you start realizing that not as much has changed as you would really like mentioned Article 11 of the Constitution in Virginia, which says it's the state's policy, it shall be, not maybe, it shall be, the state's policy to protect its atmosphere, lands, and waters from pollution, impairment, or destruction. And every office holder in Virginia, from the lowest town clerk, and I don't mean that, but they're low, but lowest level of government to the highest, the governor, and everybody in between swears to uphold and defend the Constitution of Virginia that's what they're doing. They're swearing to uphold and protect Article 11, whether they know it or not, and most don't. So we gotta work on that too. But in any event, when they say that, it's still talk. They're not really walking the walk, unless, because the first law of public administration is that budget is policy. So if you're not putting your money where the state's constitutional mouth is, you are not carrying out Article 11. I don't care what you say about it, if you're not funding it effectively so that the state's environment is being protected, that its lands and natural resources are being conserved, and that its population understands and supports why this needs to be done, you are not carrying out Article 11. So budget is key, and we decided our great insight, which again is obvious once you see it, is that these people, politicians, have been getting away with talk for as long as I've been involved and very little money to back up that talk. So we said, we got to make them put the money up. And we formed, we found, as we found way back when with the mediation idea that most businesses, most conservation groups all agreed that it was important to fund natural resources, especially the capital projects uh, such as building sewage treatment plants, funding helping farmers control um, more dispersed non-point sources of pollution from their farms, fields, and forests, and also for land conservation purchases of easements or setting up new parks or whatever it might be that actually conserves acreage and protects it for the long run. Capital projects here, I'm not talking about the operations of the DEQ or the Department of Conservation and Recreation, I'm talking about capital projects. And one of the things I learned from my service on the transportation board is that transportation, for good or ill, has a six-year capital plan. And it is a very competitive document because the number of projects that people want funded always exceeds the money available, even when you're talking billions. There's still many more billions that people want to fund, so priorities are set projects are chosen, and they are scheduled over the course of six years and beyond some cases that this project in the Richmond District for repaving 64, let's say, between Parham Road and Bryant Park Interchange, which will start soon, by the way, um, that's a 35 to $40 million project, and that 
you know, has to be programmed, scheduled, budgeted for, and funds assigned to over a multi-year process. And whether it's a new bridge to be replaced, such as we did down on the Chickahominy River a couple of years ago, or the Huguenot Bridge in Richmond, which will be replaced next year, um, these are all multiple year projects that take the accumulation of funds over time, year by year, until you get enough to actually do them. There is no such comparable thing for natural resources budgeting and capital improvements. It's catch as catch can. Every year they go in there begging for money to do stuff, except that they don't really offer a plan for how and when they're going to do it and how much it's going to cost. And in the budget business, you know, that's the very competitive business, as you see in the gubernatorial campaign this year, that's all they talk about is taking money from one or not taking money from another, and I'm not going to let that happen, and so on and so forth. Well, I wish they'd be talking about conservation of the environment the way they talk about education in the budget, but in any case, we're getting there. And so we formed this group whose only business, only reason for existence is to persuade the governor and the legislature to put up money out of the state general fund to do capital projects for natural resources, water quality, land conservation. And over the five or six years of its existence, they have been instrumental in persuading those politicians to put up well over $600 million in new money that I'm pretty sure would not have happened uh, or not as much would have happened if you didn't have this bipartisan, bi-sector, whatever, coalition ranging from Dominion, Virginia Power, to the Nature Conservancy and a whole bunch of others in between, pushing them to do this so it was safe. You know, well, if all these people agree, you know, must be okay. And of course, we had somewhat flusher times. And, and that's the problem, because now the times are tight and the budgets are being cut. All that money is not on the horizon. And what we've had, that's what I realized over time, was we had a roller coaster of funding in Virginia for natural resources. In plush time, flush times, we might get some more money for these projects. In not so great times or ordinary times, it would disappear. There'd be other priorities. And what we're trying to do is eliminate the, um, the ups and downs here and try to get a system in place that shows the governor and the legislature that institutionalizes the funding of natural resource capital projects in such a way that is predictable, transparent, foreseeable, and that you actually budget for, rather than going into a budget negotiation to say, it's the right thing to do, please give us money. That doesn't persuade anybody. What persuades people is a plan, a program, a budget, an actual you know, allocations year by year to say, if you give us the money, this is how we're going to spend it. And it was a powerful insight, which now that I've said it out loud, you say, you've got to be kidding. People didn't know this? And I would say, yeah. It's certainly not the way they operated. If you, if you look at the evidence, the evidence was um, it was catch as catch can, and it was do it because it's the right thing to do, and that doesn't work. That doesn't sell the popcorn, as it were. Uh, you've got to be more specific, and you've got to have a plan. And we're working now to convince the next governor to adopt a capital investment plan for natural resources conservation. Governor Kane sort of had one for 
uh, land conservation when he adopted an objective of 400,000 acres over his four-year term, an average of 100,000 acres a year of land to be conserved. Okay, if he makes it, or even comes close to it, that will be a significant accomplishment, and he deserves great credit for that accomplishment. But what happens next year with the next governor? If he is not interested in that, the program stops. It has not been institutionalized. And that's what we're trying to do. Every effective government program, whether it's social security at the federal level or public education at the state level, works because it's been institutionalized. Everybody knows you gotta put money into it year after year after year after year after year. With conservation of the environment, that is not the case. There is no plan for doing that. And what we divined was that we need one in Virginia, so we've been pressing. That's been wherever I am now, up to chapter seven or something like that. <laughs> and that's one major future goal. Do you have other major future goals that you might list? Um, yeah, I think one of the things, uh, I remember Jack Robertson, when he was dean of the University of Virginia Architecture School 20 years ago, told me, he said, Jerry, if we don't get a grip on these local governments and the way they just allow development willy-nilly, we're going to lose the natural beauty of Virginia and the natural resources of Virginia because they just keep approving anybody's rezoning request and turn farms, fields, and forests into subdivisions and shopping centers and things of that sort. And uh, I think he's really onto something because regardless of what the state does and regardless of what the federal government does, those land use decisions are made by local governments. And because of the way their finances are structured, they're so dependent on local property taxes. The more land that is developed, the more property tax they get, which enables them to pay their bills for schools and fire and police and so on and so forth, public safety, whatever it might be. So it is, you might say, in the local government's interest to maximize the development of land within their jurisdiction so as to maximize their revenue. Now, of course, they don't do this without limits, um, but by and large, that's the way the system is, is skewed. It's skewed to reward development to the local government. And we need to do something about that. We need to figure out what we can do to promote conservation as an equally important value to development and have a better balance between conservation and development so that you still raise the funds to do the local government's job but you do it in ways that does not destroy the environment in the process. And I think that's going to be something we have to do better. We thought land trusts would certainly help, and they have, but we need more than that. So we're going to have to work on that. And then there was a very disturbing series of articles uh, in, of all places, the New York Times recently on water quality and the things that are getting into the water today that people never thought about before, such as all the pills that people pop and the drugs that they take and all that's getting into the water with who knows what effects and whether it's got any bad effects or not. So I think that's, an, oddly enough, coming full circle to one of our original priorities, toxic substances in the water may be something we will address more. And uh, beyond that, I'm going to keep my own counsel for the moment, but I'm sure there'll be a couple of other things that we will want to something about. Thank you so much. We've got many more things to discuss.
left. So at the moment, we'll take a break and see if we're going to need another day. So we're at part two for our second interview, and I forgot to mention before, it's October the 2nd, 2009, and we were talking about future goals for the Virginia Environmental Endowment, and um, are there other things you'd like to mention? Well, one in particular that is so obvious that um, you can just assume it's there and not mention it explicitly, and that would be the whole matter of climate change and what's going on whether there is anything a small foundation such as ours could do to affect that in some positive way, whether in terms of um, people's behavior that would moderate the effects of uh, human activity on climate change, emissions, or um, in the adaptation process, how do we facilitate accepting changes that are coming and use them in a good way. Um, we embarked on that about three years ago. And it's an interesting story that um, I just can't get into all the details right now, but we've been a little bit stymied on, on that subject um, in Virginia. But we're, we've made some progress with some of the important things, like some grants to bins and some grants to local groups that are looking at what would be the and the nature conservancy, what would be the effects of climate change in their locality or on the sea level rise in Hampton Roads or uh, on the natural resources of the eastern shore and what might we be able to do about that. So we've made a few grants and we're making some progress. Um, but I think sooner or later it will come down to um, people recognizing that they have a responsibility here and that they have to make perhaps some changes in their daily activity and behavior that in fact will save them money if it comes, for example, to turning off your engine when you go into the dry cleaners rather than letting it run, or when you go into a Starbucks to get a cup of coffee. I'm, I'm just appalled at the people who will be standing in line waiting to get coffee while their engine is idling outside the parking lot. I, I don't know where that's coming from. It certainly is not only polluting the air, but it's wasting money, and you know that doesn't make sense. So conservation normally is a good thing because it saves you money, and, as well as protecting the environment. So there, there are lots of different issues around the great big global subject of climate change that we're gonna try to figure out some places where we might be able to make a difference. And that might relate to some of the changes I was talking about engaging in respect to local governments and their decisions, because the two are related. And there are several local governments in Virginia that have already said that climate change is a real concern to them, and they've signed on to various national initiatives to be a clean city or a climate change city or something like that. So I think we might want to look at those uh, and see what they're doing, in fact, or whether they'd like to do some other things and perhaps work with them or local groups that can work with their local see where that goes and Lord knows you could spend all your money doing stuff like that but between that general subject of climate change and water quality issues and toxics again and um, a couple of other things the local government business you know there's plenty to do I mean I don't think we should wind it up just yet <laughs>
Are there specific things that you see over time that you try to have an effect on, not only through um, giving out grant money, but say for now, are there any really serious environmental issues that have come up recently that you try in other ways to affect change or to have some influence? I would say that we operate on the level of public policy first. You know, that's where your leverage is the highest, is to change the law, change the rules, change officials' perception of, of things. Um, we don't do remediation. We don't do cleanups. We don't do things like that. We do education. We do prevention. Um, we do conservation. Uh, we're just too small to do more than that, and even that's a stretch. You have to be pretty clever and highly leveraged and very practical results-oriented even to do that. Um, so in terms of a specific issue, you know, if there was a fish kill in a particular place, we're not going to investigate that. I mean, the State Game and Fish Department might investigate it. Or if there's a chronic problem, such as there has been in the Shenandoah River with unexplained fish kills every spring for several years, and we've helped contribute to the study of what's that all about, to see if they might learn a, what's causing that fish kill year after year, and B, whether it's transferable, that knowledge to other places. We do that, but not, not particular instances of pollution. I wondered how you gather information that then helps you decide which grants, just reading the paper, talking to certain people. The paper is a remarkably good source of information, but you can't just read one. I read, you know, Richmond paper, the Norfolk paper, the Roanoke paper, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Newsweek Time, uh, various more specialized things from time to time. On the internet, the search engines are so powerful today, you can type in anything you want to know and you'll find you know, hundreds of thousands of links to learn more about it. Um, so there's all these resources available today that you can look to, but beyond that, you actually have to engage real people. So you get on the phone, you go out and visit, you uh, talk to people, you listen, you learn. God gave us two ears and one mouth. Um, and there's a lesson in that. And so I try to employ every communication and listening technique I can imagine to see what people think about things. And, and you find once you do that, once you focus on a topic, uh, it's pretty quickly you can become knowledgeable about it because there's so much information out there. And uh, so that's how we learn. How much involvement in professional associations do you have? And is that a help to you? Well, I was, I am involved in the uh, Council on Foundations and there, there's a southern version, the Southeastern Council of Foundations. There's also the Environmental Grant Makers, which I participate in once in a while. And uh, we have a local donors group here in Richmond that tries to promote philanthropy in the Richmond metropolitan area. I'm sure I'm leaving. Oh, there's the Association of Small Foundations, which is a very practical group. That's for foundations with no or few staff, so that everything is oriented towards you know, getting the job done, not a lot of theoretical public policy, philanthropic, change the tax code stuff. But you know, one of the most effective techniques for grant making, for investment policies, for you know, working with your board for scheduling good meetings, etc., etc. Very, very practical things like that. Uh, site visits, uh, 
there are actually good ways of doing a site visit to investigate a proposal and not so good ways. And, you know, you don't have to reinvent every wheel. There are plenty of people around who you can learn from uh, if you don't think you know something well enough. There. There's plenty of help if you want it. So I try to take advantage of all those opportunities um, and still focus on what I have to do. How often do you do a site visit? Well, it depends. Uh, if it's a group that we've already funded and it's a renewal of a project, you know, that's less necessary. If it's a group that's new to us, I don't know them. I like to say uh, we don't give money to strangers, so I like to get to know them, talk with them, see how their operation really functions, um, how they relate, how they compare to other groups doing similar kinds of work, whether they've got knowledgeable, competent people, whether they can really do what they claim they want to do, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's what a site visit is usually all about. It's always probably hard to answer questions that are very general, such as what are maybe the top three things that you're the proudest of? In the last 32 years, it's really hard to say. Well, yeah, because there's a lot more than three. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the things that I think that last are would have to be on that on that that kind of a list, such as institutions we've helped establish or get up on their feet, like creating the Institute for Environmental Negotiation at the University of Virginia, uh, inducing, bribing, whatever. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation to open a Virginia office in 1979 or 80, whatever it was. 1978, possibly, is my notes. Yeah, it, it might have been a little later than that, but in any event. Um, helping the Southern Environmental Law Center get started. Uh, establishing the Elizabeth River Project down in the Portsmouth, Hampton Roads area. Uh, the various Friends of River groups that are thriving today as a result of our initial investments and in some cases succeeding investments to keep them um, effective. Um, various and sundry things like that that we have put money into that uh, are doing well and don't rely on the endowment for their continued existence anymore would certainly um, count. Our initial successes with you know, fisheries ecosystem-based management approach and getting so many hundreds of millions of new dollars into the state budget in recent years for environmental purposes, those qualify. Um, there's a long list, I think, that I'm working on reviewing as we go through this history project that uh, when I go back to Bill Cummings' statement that I mentioned a while back, when he says, you know, if we turned over that $8 million to the state, what amazing things would have been lost. Uh, and isn't it wonderful that, you know, he made the right choice to put the $8 million into making sure the endowment um, did something useful and helped all these people do things. Um, but the, it, it boggles the mind to think that for a minute that might not have happened. I've made a short list of many institutions you've either created or helped and assisted in environmental reform. And I wondered if we might touch on each one of those. Uh, you may have others you want to add, but uh, can we start with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation? Sure. Fine organization. It was started in 1969 
out of Annapolis, Maryland, by a bunch of people who cared about the condition of the Chesapeake Bay. I think a lot of them were voters who were out there and realized that the bay was being polluted, uh, oysters were starting to decline, crabs, um, development was causing pressure. And of course, I'd heard about them when I was in state government, worked with them a little bit. Um, but they weren't really active in Virginia. They were pretty much a Maryland-based group, even though the bay was their focus. And in order to save the bay, which was their rallying call, you'd have to deal with Virginia. So when the endowment was created, one of the first things that occurred to me to do was to talk to them about maybe doing something in Virginia. And we did make a small grant to them in 78, I believe, but that wasn't the thing that got them here. What got them here was the, um, the offer to open an office and to pay for it for the first year or so. And uh, that worked. And so now they've been here all these years since. And become an integral, effective part of the conservation community in Virginia. And again, somebody I was talking to recently who started to look into some of the stuff that we're now talking about and reviewing said, I was just amazed. The more I looked, the more I realized at the beginning of a lot of these things, there was endowment money. I said, yeah, that's true. And uh, she just rattled off a half dozen things real fast. And I said, yeah start every single one of those things. He said, I have no idea. I didn't know that. That a lot of people don't know that. I said, well, they're going to because we're doing this history project. And they will. In fact, some of the people who work in these organizations probably don't know about the endowment's initial capital investment. Um, we are usually a first dollar funder rather than a last dollar funder. So that's why there's so many things that we help start uh, rather than finish. So anyway, that's the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. How about the Nature Conservancy? Well, I told you that story about the big grant to establish their, um, their Eastern Shore headquarters and programs. Um, we also established the, um, I forget what they called it, but the state now calls it their Natural Heritage Program for the protection of endangered species and flora and things of that sort scientifically valuable pieces of the environment on land. And um, we started that program with the Nature Conservancy in Virginia, and after two or three years of good success, the state finally took it over and called it the State Natural Heritage Program, and that's been in existence for over 20 years now. And that is readily supported year after year by state taxpayer funds. So that's another example of highly leveraged grant making as well. And we've done plenty of things with them, but those are two uh, that come to mind. Lately, we're doing the Eastern Shore climate change work with them. That should yield some interesting results as well. Were you involved with the Environmental Law Institute in Washington? Absolutely. That, um, that grew out of our initial interest in environmental law and public policy, and we made a couple of grants early on to ELI uh, to look at toxic substances law and the state of it and um, what needed to be done in Virginia and nationally on the subject of law and public policy on toxic substances. Because remember, there wasn't really any when the endowment was funded. And they helped sort out some of the things that ought to be done. And so they're, they're a legal public policy research center nationally. In Washington, and 
that's their job, is to look at the law, the environmental law, and to help promote it, modify it, create model statutes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so we needed their help in Virginia early on through the first, I think, I looked recently, I think the last time we made a grant to them was almost 10 years ago. So for about 20 years in a row, we supported various projects that they did for us in Virginia. And if you have more to add, it would be wonderful on the Institute for Environmental Negotiation. Oh yeah, that's just been, it, it was such a simple idea to get people, multiple parties around the same table in complex land use or environmental disputes of whatever kind, to, with the professional mediator, help work things out and reach consensus that all parties could agree to. And that's what they did for the first several years, was work on carefully chosen uh, complex issues, problems. Then they realized the next level was, you know, we don't have to do this project by project. We ought to be changing the law and the policy that allows these things to foment and become problems in the first place. So they, they started a series of roundtables where they would, anticipating problems, they would get like the chemical industry together with the environmental community to talk about hazardous waste disposal in Virginia. So we had this toxic substances roundtable that eventually led to consensus around what a hazardous waste facility siting law in Virginia, which we didn't have, ought to look like because if people started siting hazardous waste in Virginia, we wanted to be prepared to minimize the impact of that on the environment. So the chemical industry and the environmental community, with the assistance of the Institute, worked through um, a policy dialogue on hazardous waste siting and came up with a model law that they presented to the General Assembly and oops, in 1986 it went right on through because all the parties who care about it agreed to it. And the legislature loves that. Um, same thing happened with the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act. Uh, we realized that what happens on land affects the bay, the rivers that feed the bay, but there wasn't any land water connection in the law, and there needed to be. So a round table was formed on that, and a great business leader at the time in Virginia, a man by the name of Jim Wheat, uh, was the chairman of that, and Taylor Murphy, who was a delegate in the House of Delegates, was a part of it and followed its proceedings carefully because he represented the Bay Area and was very interested in this, making this land water connection. And the farm groups were represented, the Bay Foundation was represented. All in all, there were about 18 different groups around that table and that dialogue went on for a year, year and a half or so. And they came up with a bill to make a land use water quality connection, and they called it the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act, they gave it to Taylor Murphy on the House and Joe Gartland in the Senate, and even though, of course, the legislature uh, changed it somewhat, the essence of it remained the same, and in one legislative session, a very complex piece of legislation became law uh, that changed the whole rules for local governments in the coastal um, you know, whatever Virginia defines as the Chesapeake Bay region, which is about two-thirds of the state, uh, all the local governments now had to adopt new procedures for regulating land uses so that they would minimize their effects on water quality in the Chesapeake Bay, and that came out of the policy dialogue. 
Same thing happened with the in-stream flow laws. Um, the law as it existed in Virginia in the middle 80s was such that if you needed water for human consumption or industrial consumption, you took it. And um, if there was none left for the um, aquatic life in the rivers and streams, well, that was too bad. <clears throat> so they had a policy dialogue on that as well that the Institute facilitated at the end of which everybody agreed we needed to change the in-stream flow laws or create an in-stream flow law to say that, yes, these other uses are still permissible, but not past the point where they would endanger aquatic life. So we gave status to <clears throat> aquatic life as a result of that policy dialogue and made them one of the other factors to consider when making water decisions, usually in the course of a drought situation, because when it's raining, who cares? There's plenty of water, but all of this becomes important when we have droughts, as we seem to have every few years in Virginia. So that was another example of their evolution from resolving particular disputes to establishing public policy by building in ownership among the people who are most affected by it. And that has been a signal contribution. They've now gone on, in addition to all of that, they now go and they have a leadership training program to find and discover emerging talent related to the environment in Virginia, whether they work in the forestry department or the transportation department, or DEQ, or in a nonprofit, or in a business. And they get them together from September to June, train them over the course of that period, and get to know each other and see different points of view, and emerge as a body of people who over the years stay connected and can call each other up and resolve issues face to face and person to person because they now entrust each other through the leadership development program that the uh, institute runs each year. So it's been quite a successful uh, program. Did it just seem natural that UVA would be an institution you would approach about this to sponsor? Well, there was one individual in particular there who was very interested in this. And then, as I said, eventually when we sorted out the two or three that we were looking at, one of the things that made the difference was not just this individual's competence and enthusiasm, but the university's willingness to match our investment um, with office space and routine administrative expenses that added up to almost as much or as much as say the 50,000 or more that we put up in cash with a third leg actually being then they had to raise an additional third from other sources so that we had three sources of funding the endowment the university and everybody else and that's pretty much well we, we more or less ceased our institutional investment in that after about 21, 22 years. Maybe, maybe it went on longer than that. I'm trying to remember if this is 32 years. So uh, it may have been after 24, 25 years. And it's very unusual for a foundation to support an institution for that length of time. But because we started it and because it was doing, I mean, I remember Mrs. Lewis once saying when that question first came up in terms of, you know, should we keep doing this? She said, are they still doing effective work? I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, then we need to keep supporting them. It was really that simple. And we did that for a long time, not automatically. We always evaluated, we always talked to them, we always insisted that they 
were effective every year. And then at some point we decided, you know, it's been long enough, they've found other sources diversified enough that we can draw back. Now we still support an occasional project now and then with them, but in terms of the 50 to 100,000 a year, I think over those 20 plus years we gave them about $1.2 million, which is considering we've given away 26 million altogether, um, that's a lot of money. Do they have at all an emphasis on training mediators? Um, well, I don't know exactly, but it reminds me of another leverage point. Um, back in the mid-80s, again, late 80s, um, the Chief Justice of Virginia decided that uh, he needed to form a commission on the future of Virginia's judiciary because cases were becoming backlogged and justice was not being served. And it was, you know, anybody who come into court from the 1920s would be perfectly at home in a Virginia court in the 1980s. And uh, he said, we could do better. And somehow I got wound up serving on that commission. That's, I think I remember how now, but in any event, I, I asked this one fellow who secured that appointment, he says, well, all that, all that alternative dispute resolution work, that mediation work you're doing, I mean, man, this system needs that. Well, the chief, when he heard our story of what we were doing, resolving all these environmental disputes, he loved that idea, and he made it an integral part of what eventually became the recommendations of that um, commission to the point where they actually established, the Supreme Court of Virginia established a rule that said you will not try a case before you have tried alternative dispute resolution first. And that became the operating principle of the Supreme Court of Virginia, because they run the whole judicial system as well as, you know, here, appeals, but they, they are also the administrative agency for the court system in Virginia, which a lot of people probably don't know. So all the way the courts operate, from the general district to the circuit court, appeals court, Supreme Court, that's all run by the administrative arm of the Supreme Court of Virginia. And they're, like any other bureaucracy, they have their rules and procedures and whatnot. And one of the things they could do was say, as a result of our experience with alternative dispute resolution, that by God, ADR, alternative dispute resolution, was going to be the law of the land in Virginia. And it has saved countless millions of dollars and hours of time and frustration because the idea of going into court winning or losing is not what most people want out of the judicial system. They want a fair result. So if you can get in there and actually negotiate a, a settlement, that's usually to the betterment of both parties. And whether it's divorce cases or property cases or whatever, that's the way it's required to be done, last I heard. So that's more leverage. About the James River Association. Have you gotten involved with them in the early 80s? Yes, in 1983 we made our first grant to them. Uh, they were started in 1976 as a volunteer organization and so they had an economic and aesthetic interest in forming this association, which was originally called the Lower James River Association. And uh, in 1983, uh, two of their officers, they had no staff, 
was a strictly volunteer board, two of their officers who knew me took me to lunch at um, La Petite France, where one of them who worked at Reynolds Metals Company, you know, was practically across the street from. Um, so he said, why don't you come and have lunch with me at La Petite France? And I love La Petite France when it existed. So that was an easy one to accept. And they really hit me up pretty hard saying, Jerry, we got this group and it's a really good group. And, but in order to do our job, we really need to hire an executive director and uh, we need money to do that. And we're hoping that the endowment would give us the seed money to hire staff for the first time. So we made a challenge grant to them because we don't just give money, we don't make contributions, we make things happen. And so one of the ways you do that is by requiring matching funds especially from that board and from anybody else who was interested. And they did that, and so in 1983, the Lower James River Association hired its first executive director, a woman named Patty Jackson, who uh, worked there until about five years or so ago, uh, and who was a very, very effective spokesman for the organization, and led it through subsequent grants from the endowment, and I'm sure plenty of other people, um, to expand to cover the entire James River Basin, and we help them in many different ways. We've given them almost a half million dollars over the years since then. And they now have James River keepers in the upper James and in the lower James, people who get out every day on the river to monitor what's going on. And um, anyway, they're now one of the more established conservation groups in the Commonwealth. And again, you know, we've given them a lot of money over time, but the important thing is we gave them the first money. Tell me about the Southern Environmental Law Center. That's a, uh, that is a big story. Uh, but they started in 1986 with a grant from a foundation in Charlottesville. And then the second thing they did was to come running down to Richmond to talk to me because we had established a reputation for getting the public's point of view into the state regulatory process and public policy process. We brought in the Environmental Defense Fund, a national group, to establish a Virginia office in 1979 or 80, because we knew, in fact, the state knew, the state even called and asked and said, you know, the public is getting whipped here because whenever we have these regulatory decisions and rules to write, the industries who are going to be regulated have their high-paid lawyers coming in and arguing their case and what they want. And we're the state agency, and we're supposed to balance the public interest against the private interest. But the public interest is not represented. There is nobody arguing for the public interest. And uh, that was a very thoughtful insight on the part of the state agency who told me that. So after thinking it through, we decided to bring in the Environmental Defense Fund. We also use the Natural Resources Defense Council, too, another national environmental law group. And, uh, but EDF was uh, willing to open an office in Virginia, and they did in Richmond. And for seven, eight years, we supported that office. Um, but by 1986, it was clear that they were no longer interested in staying in Virginia. It was getting too expensive for them. It was too difficult to raise money or they just were losing interest. I'm not sure some or all of the above was the case. And so we were thinking, you know, this is a great loss because that representation of the public interest in legal proceedings 
regulatory proceedings, that's critical and important. And SELC had just been formed, and Rick Middleton, their wonderful founder and leader, came to see me, and he started telling me the story about how the public interest needs to be represented in Virginia, and it's not being done, and you know, SELC was formed for that purpose to work mostly in Virginia, but eventually it's gonna expand to several other states in the South, which it has done subsequently over the years, and I looked at him and I said, boy, have you ever read my mind, because we're thinking the exact same thing, because you know, EDF is leaving, we don't have anyone to replace them, so we gave them some money, and we have, I figured this out the other night because they had a big party the other night to raise new friends and new supporters. And uh, I said, I'm gonna look and see how much money we've given them. And right now, we've given them about a million and a half dollars since 1986. And they're a real success story. They are very, very good at what they do. You've given us so much time today. Thank you so much, Jerry, and we'll continue this discussion at another session. Thank you, Mary Virginia. This is great fun. <laughs> it's so great to get this on the record. <laughs>